I'm thankful to be back here with you all. And the Lord has a message today. The Lord definitely has a message today. And, and to me, it's a very beautiful and profound message. And so we need to prepare our hearts to receive the word. And so I'd like to invite all of you, as much as you are able to, to please kneel with me as we have a word of prayer, just asking God to prepare our minds to receive what heaven wants to give. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, Lord, we are grateful for your greatness. We thank you, dear God, for all that you have done and are still doing and about to do for your name's honor and glory and for the strengthening of your church. Lord, I pray that you might truly, as has been prayed often, pour out your spirit upon us, dear God. Give us more and still more of that heavenly dew that we might have the mind of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you might start with me even at this moment. Let nothing come out of my mouth that heaven does not approve. And I pray, Lord, that you might help all of us to appreciate the gospel, this beautiful plan of salvation, even more as a result of this study. For this is our prayer that we do ask in the worthy and mighty name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. You know, um, we have been going through a series as it relates to the plan of salvation. Uh, the reason why we have been going through this study is because sometimes as God's people, we can forget the basics. You know, we, we get so caught up into working for the Lord or caught up in doing a lot of things in the name of Christ, and we forget what the gospel really is all about, what the plan of salvation was designed to do on behalf of every, every soul. And um, we can begin becoming nominal if we're not careful. And it is a danger, family. I'm just letting you know. It's a danger. You can start coming to church, and it's just the normal, regular routine, and it's nothing more than that. And that was never a place that God wanted us to be. And the more that we reflect on all that God has packaged in the beautiful plan of salvation, we will see that it really is good news and that there are things that we can consider. Right now, I, I, I say this over and over again because it never ceases to amaze me. As I've told you, one thing preachers do, ministers, pastors, one of the things we do a lot more than preaching is counseling. Lots and lots of counseling. God's people have lots and lots of problems. As I said in one congregation not long ago, I said, I don't have to know any of you, but I know one thing for sure. We all have problems. <laughs> it's like that's, that's something you can easily assume very safely, is we all have problems. We got issues. And one of the things that I really appreciated about my time at uh, the called meeting for the pastors was this class where it was dealing with trauma and how if we have undergone trauma at certain stages in our lives, if we don't deal with it, it's amazing how it can impact even our ministries. And we can begin causing trauma to others while trying to be a blessing. And it was just very deep to me. And, and one thing I'm seeing over and over again is God's people. We, as God's children, we are very broken people. We have gone through some pretty serious stuff. And thank the Lord we're still standing. And thank God we're still here. Thank God we can still say, I'm here. And so we may not be what God has called us to be yet, but we're here. And I really want to thank God for every one of you just simply being here. There is still hope 
for the children of God. The power of the Lord is present to heal. When we were studying the plan of salvation, give us a little bit of a reminder. Some of the things that we have to remember is number one. In our last study, we looked at the amazing depth of God's loving kindness towards us that draws us to God and receives salvation. You remember these are just some of the verses we reviewed. Is that the plan of salvation works ever so beautifully because of this loving kindness, this God who draws us. Again, what makes Christianity completely different from paganism is that in paganism, it's always the sinner trying to do something to please the holy and righteous God. That's, that is the foundation of any type of paganistic religion, is that the sinner realizes I'm in trouble, I got some issues or whatever, I need blessings from that deity, and what they're doing is they're chasing after the deity, doing whatever the deity says to do. If you got to travel, go travel. If you got to pray a certain amount of times a day, go pray. If you got to sacrifice something, then go ahead and sacrifice it. Do something to earn that deity's favor. That is rooted in paganism. But Christianity is thoroughly different, isn't it? Christianity is the strangest story. This is why the Bible often will talk about how it does not make sense to the natural man in 1 Corinthians 2. Christianity is the story of a holy, righteous God chasing after the sinner. Always trying to get the sinner to see their desperate need for him. And he was willing to go to the furthest length that he was willing to die that we might live. And so it is that the first thing we remember from our last study on the plan of salvation, for those of you who never saw it, you go to our channel, Open Door SDA on YouTube, and you can see the previous studies that we did on the plan of salvation. We covered the loving kindness of God. Also, as mentioned in previous studies, the salvation that God brings to us is complete victory over the penalty, power, and presence of sin. It's a complete deliverance. It's not a partial deliverance. It's a complete deliverance. I often like to reflect, you know, one of the reasons why, I tell you, I love this church. I'm just letting you know I really love this church. I love this church because of its faithfulness to Bible truth. I remember when I was in the world, and I was just sharing that with my young brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. A friend of mine sent me a picture last week, and he found a picture of me in my B.C. era, you know, before Christ. <laughs> and, you know, and he, he found this picture. I don't know how he found this, but he found a picture of me when I was acting in a television show back in the days. And he sent it to me and he said, look at you. He says, you still do that posture. Now, I didn't know this, but <laughs> if you if you ever sit down with me, if we're sitting down and talking, I often like to sit down and I will have this posture. My hand will be like this on my head and I will be listening to whatever you're saying and so on. And he showed how even in my B.C. era, he caught a shot of me where I'm acting in a classroom as a student. And literally, I'm in the classroom like, you know, listening to the teacher teach the class. And I got my hand in this position. And so here it is that he's showing me this stuff. And I'm looking back and just reflecting like, wow, Lord, your deliverance is very powerful. Because, you know, I can remember where my mind was back in those days. I mean, God was the last person on my mind. And here it is that when I came in contact with this movement, this movement, and the Bible truths that they were teaching, and I remember that I began realizing something I never thought I could do, never thought, and that was to memorize. 
I never thought I could memorize stuff because, you know, you smoke enough, you drink enough, you do enough crazy stuff, you start messing your head up. And after a while, you start wondering, you know, how functional is it up here? And so in my mind, you know, I never read books. I hated books. I felt books were for nerds and weaklings. You know, I felt like, you know, anybody who reads books, like, you know, you're some type of corny person. I literally looked down on people who read a lot. Can you imagine how much the devil can trick us? Keep them away from the word. Well, here it is. This church got me into the word. And as I started reading, I can remember not only was I reading, but I was understanding. And as I was understanding, I could remember stuff. And I was just like, hold up. So I used to have this walk from the bus to my house, about 15, 20 minutes, well before Bluetooth. And so I remember walking, talking to myself. And I would just literally say, okay, the 490-year prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. When did it begin? 457 BC. How do you know that? Because verse 24 said, at the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But wait, there were three commands to do it. How do you know which command it is that marks 457? Well, 457 was under Artaxerxes, but there were two other commands that was under Darius and under Cestius, and, oh, not Cestius, uh, Cyrus. And the commands were in Ezra 1 and Ezra 4. But the reason why we know Ezra 1 and Ezra 4's commands to rebuild Jerusalem could not have been the one for Daniel 9:24 is because Cyrus's command, Daniel's command, I'm literally saying this while I'm walking on the street home. And I'm, in case you haven't noticed, I move a lot and I'm very expressive with my hands. So imagine a guy walking down the street, Daniel's command, and then such and such. So literally, I'm doing this in the street, right? So I'm literally going on and I'm just like, Daniel, because Cyrus's command was a partial, partial restitution. Darius's command was partial So why do we mark Artaxerxes in Ezra 6 and Ezra 7? Because it was a full deliverance. It was a full autonomy that was given to the people of God. And I thought to myself, wow, Lord, you're so specific in Scripture. And then here goes God bringing it to my attention. So it is with the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is not a partial deliverance. The plan of salvation is a complete deliverance. It is something that God put together that has like Artaxerxes type impact. It literally delivers from the complete hands of the enemy and gives us full autonomy to live in the freedom that we can only find in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is that when we study the plan of salvation, we must remember that it's a complete victory that God provides to every single one of his people. We will meet its fulfillment, but we will not be the ones to mark it. Notice what the Bible says in Job chapter one. Let's turn there. In Job chapter one, remember what I just said. It is complete victory. We will reach its fulfillment, but we are not the ones that mark when it happens. How do I know that? Look at what the Bible says in Job. In Job chapter one, it was right there in verse one that the Bible describes Job in a very beautiful way. And I want us to notice who's talking. All right. Job chapter one and verse one. If you're there, let me know by saying amen. Amen. The Bible says in the book of Job chapter one and verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was what? That man was what? That man was perfect or blameless and upright. One that feared God and issued evil. Who's talking right here? Who's talking right here? Who's saying this about Job? 
It was God himself. Now, some of us who are obviously very good in our hermeneutics, we know that it was Moses. That's the writer. But Moses was inspired by God. Right. So it's God. God's commentary about Job is that Job was perfect, blameless and upright. Is that right? All right. Now go to Job nine. In Job nine, same book. But now we're going to Job nine. Now let's look at Job nine and verse 20. In Job 9 now, we're looking at verse 20, and now we're going to see the Bible unfold another beautiful fact. Job 9, and we're considering verse 20. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right. It says in Job 9, verse 20, it says, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me what? Perverse. Who's talking? It's Job. Now, did God find Job to be perfect? But when Job was talking about himself, does he count himself perfect? So is it possible to be perfect and not know it? Yes. So what God is trying to say is when he completes the fulfillment of victory over sin, it is something that is real. It is something that can happen. But we are not the ones that marks when it happens. Are you following that? We're not the ones that's going to say, hey, folks, I got great news. Today, as of June the 25th at 1144 a.m., I just want you all to know I am officially perfect. Because what did Job say? He says, if I say it, I just proved I'm perverse. You follow that? So even though the Bible promises that God will deliver us from all the power of sin, even though the Bible promises that, it is not for you and it is not for me to say when we have arrived. Are you following? So what is our attitude? Philippians chapter 3. Turn there with me. In Philippians 3, what is the thing that we do mark? We don't mark saying, I am now perfect. I have now complete, total, absolute victory over sin. I am blameless. No, we don't have that language coming out of our mouth. That is a prerogative that belongs to God. God will be the one to tell everybody here is my beloved son, Dwayne, who is perfect, as well as your name. You put your name there. Now watch this. Where are we going? All right. Now, I want you to watch this. When we now consider, it, consider this, give me one second. Where are we going? Isn't that deep? I, was pre I made it look like I was preaching, and I made it look like I was testing you, but I forgot where we were going. All right. Philippians chapter three. Ministers should always be honest. Right. Philippians chapter three. Now, in Philippians chapter three, watch what the Bible says in Philippians three, 13 in Philippians chapter three and verse 13. Look at what Paul says. This, this is what we are to do because we cannot mark when we have arrived. What is it that we do mark? Philippians three. The Bible says in Philippians three, verses 13 and 14, it says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, you should do this too, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's your work. Your work and my work is to keep forgetting the things that are behind. Forget the old life. Don't keep dwelling on what you used to be and what you used to do. Now, please take ownership for what you used to do. There's a way you can forget what you used to do that can become very sinful. 
In other words, if I know I hurt my brother and he is hurt and probably walking in that hurt that I inflicted to date, the Bible is very clear. Do not forget those things that are behind and just keep it moving. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, it says, leave your gift at the altar and go make your wrong right with your brother. Don't try to move on worshiping God and all this stuff. And you know you have an open wound that you caused on somebody else's life. So when Paul says forgetting those things that are behind, he's not saying it to the point that we would neglect our personal accountability for harm and affliction that we have caused to others. Amen. Amen. So what God is saying is, is that after you've gone to others, you've apologized, you've made restitution, you've confessed your wrongs, etc. Then don't go around living in guilt all your life. Don't go around hanging your head saying, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. There comes a point that the promise of God that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness is true. And it's for that reason that we no longer walk in that darkness and that shame. We forget the things that are behind, but we're reaching for the things that are before. We're reaching, always reaching. And we keep pressing toward the mark. So that's your job. Keep pressing toward the mark. Keep seeing the things that are in front of you, reach for it. The things that are behind you, forget about it. Don't go back into that world. That's our job. But God is the one that says, congratulations, you have arrived. That's his prerogative. If you understand what I'm saying thus far, let me hear you say amen. amen. All right. Now, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, I often wonder this. When I, when I joined this movement, I would wonder and say to myself, well, why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? You know, I used to be Pentecostal. I used to be Baptist. I used to be Muslim. So I've been around a few blocks. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's like I've messed around with, with certain religions and things of that nature. Why is it that I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? What is our contribution to Christianity? And many a times, individuals will say, the contribution of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to Christianity is the Sabbath. That is completely incorrect. The Seventh-day Advent, Seventh Adventists, we did not get the name Seventh-day Adventist until 1860. That was the first time we actually got the name Seventh-day Adventist. Then it was in 1863 that we became an organized body of believers. Okay? There were Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping movements well before 1860. Okay? Seventh-day Baptist would be one example amongst many. So our contribution to the world of Christianity is not limited to the Sabbath because there was already a bunch of Sabbath keepers. So then the question is, then what was our contribution? The answer is very simple according to the picture, beloved. <laughs> our contribution to the world of Christianity is our understanding of the gospel through the sanctuary. That's our contribution. Okay? If somebody were to say, what did the Baptists bring? What did the Methodists? You know, under the Methodists with John and Charles Wesley, they were the first ones to bring about this ideology of perfection during the Reformation. Okay? Martin Luther, obviously with the Lutherans, they're bringing in justification. You know, Roger Williams, religious liberty. So if you go down the history of many people, they were like bringing all these pieces of the puzzle during the Dark Ages. It was, they were literally building God's church back up. When the Seventh-day Adventist church came on the scene, now we come along and now we're presenting the entirety of the gospel, but it's through our understanding of the sanctuary. Somebody says, where do you get that from? 
You remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that right? No man comes unto the Father but by me. Remember Jesus said that? So you want to know how to get to the Father? Christ is the way. Well, if you want to rightly understand the way, the Bible left a secret for us. It's in Psalm 77 and verse 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That's why the best way to understand the gospel is through the sanctuary. The sanctuary was filled with the way of God. How to find our way back into the lovely arms of Christ. And that's the reason why we study the subject of the sanctuary so much, and many would do well to study it as well. Now, you know why this is important? Because the reality is, while God can bring complete and absolute total victory over sin in all of our lives through the plan of salvation, a lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people don't believe it. And let me tell you something. Your mind and your accomplishments will only go as far as what you believe. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 to that father, when that father saw his son tormented, I can only imagine what that father was going through. When I think about how much I love my children, to see a demon tearing them apart and trying to get them to commit suicide and all this stuff, I mean, it would kill me to watch that. And here it is that that father, in his desperation, he goes to Christ and he says, Lord, are you really able to do this? Because he just saw his disciples fail. So he's like, your disciples couldn't do it. Can you really do it? And you remember Jesus' response? Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible to him that believes. There are times that Jesus would say, according to your faith, be it unto you. So literally, yours and my limitations in life is largely based on what you believe. If you convince your mind you can't do it, you're right. But you'd be amazed at how if it's in Christ, if we convince our minds we can, we can. So here it is that there are some people today, unfortunately, and I, I wish I could say outside of our church, but there are people inside of our church. There are people that hold degrees like scholars and things of that nature and will tell you that you cannot have complete victory over sin. They will tell you you're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. And what they're really saying is that the Bible is not true. Can I prove it? We know that the gospel is revealed through the sanctuary. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, right? According to the book of Revelation, chapter 15 and verse 8, it says something very powerful. Take a look at the text. In Revelation 15 and verse 8, the Bible says, and the temple was filled with smoke. What was filled with smoke? The temple. Now watch this. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And then it says, and how many men? It says no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So the Bible teaches that there's a temple. Normally, there'd be a man that would go in it. But during this time when the temple is now filled with smoke, it says no man can enter in until everything is completed with the plagues. Now, the question is, what man goes into the temple? There's only one person. The Bible says it very clearly in Hebrews 9, verse 6 and 7. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests 
went always into the first tabernacle. That's the temple. That's the first part, what we call today the holy place. It says accomplishing the service of God. So who goes into the temple? The priest. And then one time in a year, it says, but into the second area of the temple. That's what we call the holy of holies, most holy place. It says the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So who's the man that would enter into the temple? It was the priest. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's open book test, but never fail an open book test. That's an open book test. Who's the man that enters into the temple? None other than the priest, the high priest. That's it. I wonder who our high priest is. Hebrews 3 and verse 1 tells us, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. What's his name? Christ Jesus. So Jesus is our high priest. Check this out. What is the function of a priest? What does a priest do? Hebrews chapter 5. Scripture is always going to be the key that unlocks Scripture. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. What is it that a priest does, right? Hebrews chapter 5. You got to get this, family. This is deep. It's not terribly deep, but it's deep enough. Hebrews 5. What is it that a priest does? Okay? Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 5, right there in verse 1, let's find out what a priest does. It says, for every high priest. How many high priests? Every single one of them. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both what? Gifts and sacrifices for? So that's what a priest does. The priest intercedes on behalf of the people, offering gifts and sacrifices for their sins. Revelation 15, 8 says a time will come where the temple will be filled with smoke and there will be no priest in the temple, which means there's no intercession going on. Are you following that? There's no intercession going on. Now check this out. Will people still be alive? during this time that the temple has no intercession going on? Yes, because the Bible says plagues are going to be falling on folks, right? So there's going to be people that's going to be alive. That's what you read in Revelation 16. Re Re Revelation 15, 8, verse 8, that's the last verse of chapter 15. Then chapter 16 starts, and now it's all these plagues being poured out on people. Will just wicked people be alive during the plagues? No, there'll be righteous people. This is where Psalms 91, you ever read Psalms 91 where it talks about 10,000 shall fall on the right side, 1,000 on the left, but the plagues will not come near us? So there's going to be righteous and wicked people alive during a time that there's no more intercession. What happens to those people? How do you live when there's no intercession going on anymore? How do you live? Revelation 22 tells us. Go to Revelation 22. I love studying the Bible. Do you love studying the Bible? I sure hope you do. In Revelation 22, the reason why God has no problem letting his people live during a time where there's no more intercession is because before that time, God's going to say something. You want to know what God's going to say? Revelation 22. 
It says it right here in Revelation 22, beautifully, in verse 11. It says in Revelation 22, verse 11, he that is unjust, let him be what? How long? Still. It says, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. But then it also says, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous how long? Still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. You see, God has no problem cutting off intercession at a certain point because everybody will have already made up their minds. There's only going to be two classes of people during this time. Those who are filthy and unholy still and those who are righteous and holy still, meaning no one can change their position. If God gave them a million more years, those who are holy would never go back to wickedness. If God gave the wicked a million more years, they would never go back to holiness. Everybody is settled. That's it. Now, here's the point. The Bible, therefore, teaches that there will be a people that will have complete total victory over sin before the second coming of Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? That's the biblical evidence. God is going to have a people that literally there will be no high priest mediating because he doesn't need to, because everybody has finally made up their mind. The ones for holiness are sealed with the seal of the living God. The ones who are for wickedness are marked with the mark of the beast. And so the Bible teaches there will be a people that will have victory over sin before the Lord comes. Now watch the evil perversion of the antithesis. If we are going to sin until Jesus comes, then that means there's only one, two facts about what we just read in Revelation 22. That means that we can be holy and keep sinning, which is a perversion of the gospel, or there will be no holy people at all, and God is just going to simply save a bunch of sinful people that keep sinning. And if that's true, then guess who will be the first person knocking on heaven's door? Satan himself saying, you need to let me back in because the only reason you kicked me out was because of sin. So if you're going to let these people go in with their sins, with no true deliverance, then you need to let me back in with my sins and no true deliverance. Do you see the perversion of the ideology that we will keep sinning until Jesus comes. That, that makes no sense. That is completely unbiblical, and it absolutely cheapens the gospel. Satan is so powerful, he can keep us in sin. God is so weak, he can't deliver us from sin. God forbid a minister, yea, a professor at a school, would dare teach the precious minds of God's people such a perversion. But sadly, it's happening. Now, I get it. <laughs> I mean, I understand. The problem is this. When, when we teach complete victory over sin, right, here's what battles in our minds. It's called ideal versus reality. The ideal is that God will deliver us from all sin. How's the reality looking in your life? I want you to think about this. Some of us have been, some of us have been, some of us have sat under the teachings of God's word for so long, and we're still absolutely 
pummeled by the power of Satan and by the power of sin. You know what that does? That makes you stop believing. It makes people start, stop believing. It makes you say, if victory over sin is possible, why is it none of us are experiencing it? This is what goes on in people's minds. Who do you know that's experiencing it? But do we have to know? No, didn't, didn't we just study Job? We don't have to know, right? That's not for me to know. That's not for you to know. We are children of God. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? God said it. God said there will be such a people. Some of us got the Elijah syndrome. I'm the only one righteous. There ain't nobody else. And God is like, excuse me, I have several thousand that have not bowed their knee to Baal just like you. Family, little lesson from nature. Go outside. Not now. When you go outside, look look in the sky. Tell me how many stars you see. The only star you're going to see is the sun. That's it. But you know what's beautiful? When the night comes, you can stand in the same place. Literally, stand, stand here, stand in one spot, look in the sky during daylight. But it could be like an hour before sunset. And look in the sky. Count how many stars you see. You're going to say, man, I can't see any. But let the night come. You're standing in the same place. All of a sudden, whoa, you see all these stars. One of the most exciting things about the property that I stay on is looking at that sky at night to see that laden of stars out there like that. And you know what God was trying to teach us through that lesson? When life's good and we're living in the day, daylight hours of Earth's history, we can't see God's stars yet. But let the night of persecution come. You're going to see a lot of God's stars start showing up. So don't get caught up in what you don't see. Because we're children of faith and we walk by faith and not by sight. God says, I am going to have a bunch of people that keep my commandments and have the faith just like my son had. God says, I'm going to have it. And we need to trust those words. So victory over sin is absolutely possible. But again, very few believe this to be an actual possibility because we're so sinful. And the sad reality is, is because we're so sinful, because we love our sins so much, or because we feel trapped by our sins. We stop believing that it's even possible to have victory over it. And we turn our message from a true gospel message to a cheap grace message. Just because of our experiences. Can you imagine we change the gospel because of our experiences? This is happening all the time, beloved. God wants us to understand. We believe in a gospel that God only provides a, this is what, this is the conclusion of those who don't believe that God can give complete victory over sin. Therefore, we believe in a gospel that God only provides a forensic deliverance, but not a practical and actual one. God says we're holy, but we're not really living holy lifestyles. This is, this is, there's a lot of people that teach forensic justification. God declares something that's not true about our lives. It's kind of like that picture I showed you several weeks ago of the guy who has his dirty robe and Christ just puts his beautiful white robe over it. But that's not what Zechariah 3 taught us. Zechariah 3 said, take away the filthy garment. But a lot of people want to just have God's righteousness cover our filthiness. That's not the real gospel. And so what we need to understand, beloved, an enemy has done this. This foul teaching that is now pervading throughout churches, including our own, unfortunately, by false ministers with false messages. We need to understand an enemy did this. 
This is Satan's plan. Because the mind will go, only go as far as what it believes. If you don't believe God can deliver you completely, then we're going to show that in our lifestyle, in the education. And the worst part is we pass it on to our children. It's like we don't even give them a chance. I always encourage fathers, listen, if you're a drunkard, if you're a pervert, if you're, any, if you're struggling with anything, let that be your struggle, but give your children a better chance. If you want to make excuses for your defilements and say, I, I, just, I just can't or I just love or whatever, okay, make it, you deal with you, but don't give that on to your children. Give them a better chance. We owe that to our children. I have to own up as a father and say, this is my hang up. This is my problem. I have weaknesses and I'm just at a place where I'm not fighting like I should. Pray for me. But don't try to change the gospel to accommodate our compromising lifestyles. Let us not do that, beloved. The blood of Christ is way too precious to have been spilled so we can now cheapen the story of redemption. Let us not do that, family, please. If you're struggling, it's all right. I'm going to show. Boy, I can't wait. Let me keep pressing. You watch this, this presentation. Y'all getting appetizers right now. We didn't even get to the entree yet. This is a powerful message. It blessed my heart just going through it. I was like, Lord, you are too sweet. I mean, this is, all right, let me keep going. An enemy has done this thing. So here's some things we need to understand. Let's keep this in mind. Three things. Number one, we've already gone through this in our studies. We're going to magnify it a little bit more. The true nature of sin, that's one thing we need to understand. In previous studies, we showed that sin is the transgression, breaking, of God's Ten Commandments. Now watch this. This is a very deep point right here. This can be done by determined thoughts. Let's pause right there. How do you break God's commandments with determined thought? How do you do that? Here's what a determined thought is. I would do it if the opportunity availed itself. You're already convinced I would do it if the opportunity availed itself. It's kind of like a young lady saying, hey, why don't you come by my house and cheat on your wife with me? The man says, oh boy, this is a tough one. So then he makes a decision, a decision. He did not do the act. He makes a decision. He says, you know what? My wife gets on my nerves. We argue all the time. I'm not too sure about God anymore and I'm thoroughly dissatisfied with my life. I'm gonna have some fun. I'm gonna go to that lady's house. He goes to the lady's house. He pauses, he's thinking, but then he decides, nope, I'm doing it. Boom, and he hits that doorbell. And the woman opens the door and says, welcome, here's my husband. And she goes ahead and pulls out a Bible and begins studying with that individual to show them the error of sin. The guy is shocked. Here's the question. Did he commit adultery as it pertains to the act? Did he commit adultery? Was he in his thoughts determined to do it as long as nothing else stopped the opportunity? This is why Jesus says when you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already done it. What Jesus was not saying is attractive woman walks by. You're struggling. You look at her. You're like, wow, she looks so great. I shouldn't look a second time. Oh, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Lord, please help me. 
That's called struggle. That's called struggle. That's not adultery. Are you following? That is temptation and that is struggle. But when the woman walks by and she winks at you and you go, ooh, okay. You, walk, you, look, you watch her walk past and she pauses and looks at you and says, would you like to come to my home? You say, yes, I would. Then you start walking with her towards the bus. And then she says, I changed my mind. And then she walks away and minds her business. In the mind of God, you just committed adultery because there was nothing that was going to stop you except the opportunity. Are you following that? It's called determined thought. When your thought is already determined, I've made up my mind, I'm going to do it, and the only reason you don't do it is because you were stopped. That's when God says, in my mind, you just did it. That's like taking a gun and deciding to go ahead and assassinate someone. You go to the person, you take the gun, you put it to their head, you pull the trigger, but nothing comes out. You cock the gun, strike it back, pull the trigger, nothing comes out. The person gets away. You did not physically murder him, right? But how does heaven look at it? You were determined in your thought. The only thing that stopped you was the opportunity. You murdered him. Are you following that? This is how God judges. He doesn't judge because we're in a struggle or we're going through temptation. But when we are determined in our thought, I'm going to do it. And then the only reason it wasn't done was because of the lack of the opportunity. God says, you just did it. Even though you didn't do it. That's what Christ meant by if you hate your brother without a cause, you're still a murderer. If you go ahead and look at the woman with lust, you're still an adulterer. Are you following that family? All right. So here it is. It says this can be done by determined thoughts and, of course, actions, but not merely by having a sinful nature. Very important. Continuing. The next thing we need to understand is the condition of man. We are born with a nature that has a natural bend towards evil. But we covered this in our first study, the plan of salvation, part one. Let's go back to it if you want. You can see all the things we talked about. Then we have number three, which is the nature Christ took on in order to save man. These are the three things. If you're really going to understand the plan of salvation, you have to understand these three things. You have to understand. If you really want to be a student of scripture and really understand the science of salvation, we need to understand the true nature of sin, the condition of man, and the nature of Christ. This is the best way for us to have biblical advantage to really understand the depth that Christ went so you and I can be saved. Now, Dealing with the nature of man, let's go to Psalm 51. I'm going to deal with one of the most controversial verse, verses in the Bible, which is Psalm 51. Um, Psalm 51 has been perverted even by certain translators to say things that the psalmist was not saying. Psalm 51. Let's go ahead and look at it. In Psalm 51, we know this to be David's repentant prayer. David committed sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. And in him committing adultery, David got to the point that now he is repenting of his sin. He got caught. Nathan came to him, exposed his sin. David is now repentant. He is sorrowful for his sin. Let's notice the wording in this language. We're going to do Psalm 51. We're going to take it from 1 to 12. 1 to 12, okay? 
because this makes up the bulk of his repent prayer of repentance. All right, because it's several verses, I'll do verse one, you'll do verse two, I'll do three, you'll do four, and then we'll take it down, all right? Psalm 51 and verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Go ahead. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the controversial verse, verse 5. This is the verse that really gets twisted. And people make it seem like we are born guilty sinners. This is the verse we're going to need to explain and clear up, and we will. Go ahead to verse 6. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And that's when the next verse goes into what he'll do after God does this. Now, if we were to break this down, this is what's happening in the mind of King David as he's repenting before God. He laments his sin. He clearly sees that he was wrong. He understands I have made a horrible decision, but now he wants to get right with God. This is a breakdown. And this was a very good one um, that was very consistent. It comes from the pulpit commentary. It's a group of several scholars that come together and they comment on different uh, passages of scripture. And this commentary is very, very accurate to the truth of what was being stated. Number one, when we look at verses one to four, David was simply saying, not only have I committed acts of sin from verses one to four, he's acknowledging I did sin, but it's not only that I committed acts of sin. Then when you get to verse seven, it says, but sin is thoroughly ingrained into my nature. This is what he's saying in Psalm 51, five. He's acknowledging sin is ingrained in my nature. And you watch how we break this thing down. It says, I was conceived in it. I was brought forth in it. And only the strongest remedies can cleanse me from it. It's kind of like the story you always hear about the frog and the scorpion. How many of you remember the frog and scorpion story? You remember that? The frog and scorpion story goes like this. The frog wants to get across, no, the scorpion wants to get across the water. But the only way he could do that without drowning is he goes to this frog and he says, hey, can you give me a ride? The frog is like, absolutely not. He's like, you're a scorpion. I know what you're going to do. You're going to sting me. So then the scorpion is like, no, nah, I'm not going to sting you, man. I, don't worry. I won't do it. And then the frog is like, yes, you are. You're going to sting me. The scorpion says, I'm not going to sting you. I just need to get across. Once you get me across, I'm going to go away and mind my business. Frog is like, you promise? Scorpion's like, yep, I promise. Scorpion gets on the frog's back and they leap one, leap two, leap three, leap four. And then finally the frog lands on soil and gets across the pond. Once the frog lands and gets on the pond, the scorpion stings him. 
The frog is screaming in pain, knowing that he's about to die. And the frog says, you promised that you weren't going to sting me. Why then did you do it? The scorpion's answer, it's in my nature. I can't help but to be what I am. You see, when that scorpion first came into this world, it had a stinger, but it didn't sting anybody yet. You understand that? When a spider comes into this world, it has venom, but it didn't bite anybody yet. When a snake comes into this world, it has venom, but it didn't bite anybody yet. But it has a propensity that can only go in one direction. Watch this, except their nature changes. David is acknowledging, Lord, I have sin in my nature. I was born with this nature. And this is what it's bringing about, Father. David is not acknowledging, I'm born guilty, I'm born a sinner, because that's ridiculous. No one sins just because you have a nature, and I'm going to prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt. So this is what we see from verses 5 to 7. Now, verse 10, what does he go? He next says to God, but Lord, I know cleansing alone is not enough. I need a renewal. I need a renewal. I don't want you to just wipe away my bad history. I want you to make me a completely different person. Then he goes on and says, I need your Holy Spirit to be this, clean, this new person because I crave above all the sense of a restoration to your favor, a return to the old feelings of joy and gladness that he once had. Because he lost some of this when he committed what he committed. And then in verse 12 it says, even the joy of your salvation. By no means was David saying, I am born a guilty sinner. David was acknowledging, I'm born with a nature that is completely sinful. And sooner or later, these acts that I did are to be expected. And that's why I'm asking you, give me a new heart. Clean me up. Make me a brand new person. And here's the thing that's interesting. David not only said this, but in Psalm 58, here's what he said next. Think about this. This is why I really want to deal with this born sinner ideology. David says in Psalm 58, 2 and 3, Yea, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now, does this make sense? If you're reading it for face value, does it make sense? How can you speak a lie as soon as you're born? You can't even speak. Hear what I'm saying, family. Who could possibly speak a lie as soon as they're born? You can't speak a lie because you can't even speak yet. What is David trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate this point right here. The word estranged in verse 3 is translated in the Hebrew, become estranged. Meaning, at some point, when I'm born through the womb with this sinful nature of mine, sooner or later, I'm going to become estranged from God once I start speaking lies and practicing wickedness. But the idea that one is already just as guilty as a liar or a murderer or a thief just coming out of the womb is nonsense. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is what false religion teaches. And watch this. Did you know that from the womb, the story can be different? Look at what the Bible says. You remember this? 
But thou art he who took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb, and thou art my God from my mother's belly. The story can be different. How about this one? For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my trust in my youth. By thee have I been holding up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. And of course, the most powerful testimony for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And this is not talking about Jesus. This is talking about John the Baptist. Okay? It says, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. The story can be changed. Even from the womb. We can come out where God is in control of our lives. And so by no means was David trying to confess that we just have this innate guilt when we're born. That is completely Roman Catholicism. That is Roman Catholic teaching, and that should not come out of the mouth of God's remnant people. That is error. Now, the only way to escape, how does God make this happen where we can have this change even though we have a sinful nature? The Bible says it in John 3. The Bible says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So the only way that we can overcome this natural tendency to do wrong is we must be born again. And when we are born again, here's what the Bible says happens. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions that are in the world through lust. God makes it clear that when we are born again, this is how we can overcome every call of our sinful nature. When the sinful nature wants to go left, because of the divine nature, we can go right. If we don't have divine nature, it's only a matter of time. We are going to do wrong. Are you following that? Now, why is this so important? The conclusion. We are born with a nature that has a natural tendency to do wrong. And without divine intervention and being born again, eventually we will do wrong. This is a fact, okay? This is why the imperative is you must be born again. Are you following? If we're going to ever have that bliss with God, we must be born again. Now, oh, wretched man that I am, this is what Paul was saying. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's a question. How does Jesus Christ our Lord enable us to live this brand new life? The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 5, when Jesus came to this world, he came with a body, didn't he? He was human. Is that right? Now, when Jesus came to this earth, he was 100% human. 100%. Do you agree with that? Or was he partial human or was he human? Was he, was he total human or was he mostly human? Okay, I'm just checking. When Jesus came to this earth, a body was prepared for him. And when he came to this earth, the Bible tells us something about his nature. 
In Luke 1 and verse 35, here's what the Bible says about Christ. Jesus knew the people will not be saved except I accomplish something for them to pave the way so that they can do what I did. When Jesus came to this world in Luke 1 and verse 35, the Bible's very, very clear, isn't it? It says, and the angel answered and said unto her, that's Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So according to the Bible, when Jesus came into this word, world, he was 100% holy. Is that right? That holy thing. So when he came into our world, he came with a sinless nature. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Oh, yeah. He came into this world with a sinless nature. That's a fact. But that's not the end of the story. Let's turn our Bibles to Philippians 2. Go on a few more verses, then we're going to wrap this up in a little bit. Philippians chapter 2. Now I want you to see this. In Philippians, the second chapter, I want you to watch verses 6 and 7. And I want you to watch a word that I want us to pay very close attention to it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. When you get there, please say amen. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, Who being in the form of God, this is talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the what? The likeness of men. Now, when the word says likeness, that can indicate he's somewhat but not fully. Here's my question. When Jesus was made in the likeness of men, was he made fully a man or was he partially a man? I'm going to ask the question again. When Jesus came into this world, was he fully a man or was he somewhat like a man, but not really? How many say fully? Right hand. Ooh. How many say not fully? Left hand. How many say, I have no idea? Both hands. Okay, that's good. Now watch this. The answer is he was fully a man. He was 100% a man. He was 100% man. But I want you to watch, because I'm trying to guard you against the word likeness. The word likeness literally means he was just like a man in every way. He was, he was a man. He was 100% human. Now, you want to know why I, get, I brought that up? Because now I want you to go to Romans 8. And I want you to see the word likeness come up again. And we're about to discover something. In Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Now, let's look at what the Bible says here. Romans 8, in verses 3 and 4. The Bible says this, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. You know, you know, do you know what the word flesh means? It doesn't mean skin. It means nature. So the Bible just said in Romans 8 verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Weak through sinful nature. Sinful nature couldn't do it on its own. God sending his son in the likeness of sinful nature. Is that right? It says God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful nature and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The Bible declares that Jesus did not just have a sinless nature. The Bible declares that Jesus also had a sinful nature. And the only reason a Christian would call it blasphemy is because they have been deceived by the doctrine of original sin that sinful nature equals sinner. That's the only reason you would call it blasphemy. But because of the study that we have done, we know that just because you have sinful nature does not mean that you will sin and are living as a sinner. Because we just saw that God's going to have a whole bunch of people in the last days that he calls holy, but they still have sinful natures. Did you catch it, beloved? Did you catch it? See what happens when we stay up late night after night and then we come to church and then when we start hearing the words of God, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, he begins to fan us. That we might fall asleep and miss what God is trying to communicate. I'm very serious, beloved. That's written in inspiration that Satan loves to do that. This is a very, very deep study. I told you that. God is trying to help us understand our salvation is so secure because Christ says, I came in your position. I took it on. Jesus says, I have gone through worse than any human being has ever gone through, and I was tempted in all points and still didn't do it. Do not make excuses for your sins, beloved. Go to God and say, Lord, teach me how to walk in your steps, dear Father. Lord Jesus, show me how to live as you lived. Literally, Romans 1 and verse 3, we don't have to turn there. But Romans 1 verse 3 says Jesus came with the same flesh as David. And this is literally the word flesh. Human nature with his frailties physically or morally and passions. So check it out. Jesus had the same nature that David had. So if David was confessing in Psalm 51, 5, I'm a guilty sinner just by my nature, then that you're saying that Jesus is a guilty sinner because he took the same nature that David had. God forbid we would teach such blasphemy. Jesus had a sinful nature, but he also had the divine nature. It is none other than the servant of the Lord who made a powerful statement. You know, the, the, one of the things in Seventh-day Adventism, we get into all these ridiculous battles over pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian. That's another way of just saying sinful nature or sinless nature. Which one did Jesus have? I'm going to show you in one quote. I like ending fights quick. I was taught that in the world in martial arts, and I believe it applies in spiritual things as well. End fights quick. I'm going to end the fight in one, one quote ends the whole fight. All those who have a big pile of Ellen White clothes, he had a sinless nature. All of those big pile, he had a sinful nature. I'm going to end the fight in one shot. You ready? One blow. He took upon his what kind of nature? Sinless nature. Our what kind of nature? Sinful nature that he might know how to secure those that are tempted. End of fight. That's the end of the fight. Everything else she said is a magnification of this fact. When Jesus came into this world, he had both a sinless and sinful nature. And you know what's deep about that? When we're born again, guess what we have? We have now a sinless and sinful nature. He came on the same fighting grounds that you and I fight when we're born again. To show us how to make it. This is a wonderful story of the gospel.
Let me bring it to a close. Conclusion. Jesus came into this world like when we're born again. Don't forget that. Jesus did not come into this world like when we're born. That's been the foul part of the teaching. Because when we're born, all we have is sinful nature and we are guaranteed to sin. Isn't that right? That's a guarantee. So Jesus did not come into this world like how we came into this world. Jesus came into this world like when we're born again. That's the equal playing field. Are you following, beloved? It says Jesus came into this world like when we're born again, divine and sinful nature. He did not sin not merely because of innate holiness, but because the divine nature enabled him at every stage of his life to resist the pull of the sinful nature. He always resisted evil and chose the good. You and I, when we're born again, we now have the same opportunity. We have the same opportunity. And he's the one that paved the way so you and I can do it. The Bible says, wherefore, in all things, in how many things? In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He became like us in all things. That's why it also says, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That's why he did it. He knew the struggles we were going to go through. He knew the battles that we were going to face. And therefore, he said, I will come on the same playing field just like them, and I will overcome as a model for them to follow my path. The Bible continues in Hebrews 4 and verse uh, 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now watch this. Somebody says, so are you saying that Jesus was tempted to watch porn? Were you saying that Jesus was tempted to shoot a man? Were you saying that Jesus was tempted to do all these evils? Are you suggesting that Jesus went through these things that we go through? To a degree. Watch this. The foundation of all temptation is to do what self wants to do rather than what God wants us to do. You read that in James chapter 1, verse 15. The foundation of all temptation to sin is to do our will instead of God's will. Are you following that? This is where Jesus relates to you and I. But he never cultivated these propensities we have taught ourselves, like going after pornography, like going after thieving and stealing like committing all sorts of perversions. Christ never cultivated that. So no, he cannot relate with our passion for porn or our passion for violence because he never cultivated that. But where does Jesus and you and I meet it? Every time we go to porn, we're trying to please self. Every time we want to hurt somebody, we're trying to please self. Every time we watch, do, eat, drink, or whatever we do, we're doing it that we might please self. This is where Christ meets us. Jesus says, I know what it is to want to do what self wants to do rather than what God wants to do. But he even left that as a model for us when he said, nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. 
So please don't dumb down Christ so much that we begin to think that he had the same cultivated propensities that you and I have developed as a result of our exposure to sin. Are you following that, beloved? That is where we draw the line with our beloved Savior and ourselves. We cultivated stuff. Nobody came out of their mother's womb wanting to hurt anybody, watch porn or any of the other garbage. We cultivated that. We learned that. We got trained in that. Christ never got such training. Therefore, he never had the specificity of those battles. But what Jesus says is, I know how it feels at the core of your being to want to do what self wants to do rather than what God wants to do. Christ says, that's where I know how to meet you and I know how to deliver you. And the best news in the world is he went through it worse than we did. And he came out victorious. Do we understand that point, beloved? That's a very important point. In closing, the Bible says, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So as Christ had a human sinful nature, yielding to the divine nature and overcoming, Jesus says, now walk the same life as well through my power. Jesus says, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. He can deliver you from anything. Beloved, don't make excuses for the bondage that we're in. The plan of salvation reveals Christ has power still to deliver. Don't let the devil trick you into thinking, I can't get victory over this. Look at me. I keep falling into this sin. I might as well just give up. That is the voice of Satan. That's not the voice of God. I would like to recommend stop listening to the voice of the enemy. The plan of salvation reveals to you and I that Christ says, I came so low just to meet you in the same battles. And Jesus says, and if I could make it, you can make it. Now, the Bible closes by saying, my little children, here's a beautiful package, isn't it? My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. But he says, but remember, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God makes it very clear. In the plan of salvation, it is full. It is so possible. I don't know about you. You see, if there's one thing that this called meeting did for me as a pastor over there at that meeting, I remember going to my wife and I told her, I said, honey, I said, I'm seeing something that I haven't seen as clearly before. She said, what's that? I said, how broken I am. I said, I'm serious. I said, I'm finally becoming more okay with acknowledging I am a broken individual. And I have some very serious challenges. And I can't worry about saving face with any of the saints because none of you, no disrespect, but none of you have a heaven to put me in. I can't worry so much about how you're going to think of me or respond. I got to be concerned with the reality of what I'm seeing about myself and making sure, Lord, is everything good between you and I? That's what's weighing on my mind more than anything else. I dare not put a front up for any of you because I'm not going to act. I will not do that. And so as I'm becoming more acquainted with my brokenness, it's helping me to realize, but God has a plan to save. And somebody can come along and say, Dwayne, I know what it is. I know what it is to be tempted in all points, to go through some terrible trials. Jesus says, I've gone through worse than you'll ever go through, son. And if I made it, follow me. I'll show you how to do the same thing. And the best news in the world, he didn't just say that to me. He's saying that to you. He's saying that to you right now. Stop worrying about what other people think. Stop worrying about how you'll be perceived. 
It would be a tragedy to win the hearts of men and lose our connection with God. And I determined I will not do it. I will go through embarrassment. I will go through whatever it takes. But I have not come this far to lose now. And so for me, I'm at a place, Lord, I accept the brokenness that you're revealing about me. And I'm doing something about it. And it all begins right there at the foot of the cross. And that is the appeal that I'm making to you is because of his sacrifice, because of what he's done. There is no reason that you have to keep living in bondage anymore. If you and I continue in bondage, it's our choice. But he has come to save. And this is part of the package in the plan of salvation. Question, how many of us understood our study? How many of us in this room are really recognizing, Lord, I've made excuses for my sins. I've been making excuses. I've been doing some things that I know is not right. I've been doing some things and I just simply looked at how everybody else is doing it. It might be okay or it's not that bad. And we made excuses. Forgetting the great sacrifice that Christ has made so we can no longer make excuses. I wonder if there's anybody in this room that says, Lord, I've been making excuses, but I'm willing to cooperate better with you. No more excuses. And I want you to give me the full experience of your blessed plan of salvation. And especially because Jesus did it for me. If that's you, please stand to your feet with me. I want to pray with you. And I know that God is going to bless you. I know God's going to help you. And I know, family, that it might require some grueling experiences. Acknowledging our sins can be hard. Sometimes it can cause us to go to prison. Sometimes it can cause a marriage to be broken. Sometimes it can cause leadership positions to be removed. Sometimes it can cause us to suffer loss. But I promise you, in the end, you will come out victorious. We have come too far to turn back now. Let God have his way in your heart, family. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to see the power of your word. We thank you that Jesus was willing to do whatever it takes so that we could be saved. And he now can say he relates to us. We can know, Lord, that when we feel in those moments of being alone, we can look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, I pray that a greater communion, a greater love, a greater bond would take place in our hearts with thee as a result of what we have learned about you today. Thank you so much for this gift in the plan of salvation. Lord, I pray, please help us to be faithful. Give us true victory. And thank you, Lord, that if we do fail, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer on our side who's willing to help us get back up, wipe us clean, and tell us to get back on that narrow road and press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Keep us faithful, we pray to this end. We ask in Jesus' name that everyone say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.